You're listening to TIP. So there were people living there in their campers. There were 100 people living there with refrigerators and mailboxes outside. And they were paying $300 a month. And that included everything. It wasn't anywhere near enough to pay all of the bills. In this week's episode, I talk with Heather Blankenship about investing in campgrounds, RV parks, mobile home parks, Section 8 multifamily properties, and much, much more. Heather Blankenship is an entrepreneur and real estate investor focused primarily on RV parks, mobile home parks, and Section 8 multifamily properties. She has 11 years of experience as an investor and niche broker covering RV parks and mobile home parks and has supported over $300 million of transactions in her industry. If you've been listening to this show for a bit now, you've likely heard me talk about how I've started investing in RV rentals, And also you'll hear in this episode that I've spent a lot of time in my life at campgrounds. So when Heather reached out to me to come on the show and talk about investing in campgrounds, I was super excited to chat with her and learn all about it. I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode as much as I did. Let's get right into it. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Heather Blankenship. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today because we're going to be talking about a few different types of assets in real estate that we haven't talked about much here on the show. And because one sort of ties into or relates to a new business venture that I've gotten into myself, which is RV rentals. Let's start the conversation there and talk about your investing in campgrounds. The first one you purchased was in Tennessee for $3 million. At the time, you had no experience, no team, and no money. If you lacked all of those things, how did you actually purchase this campground at just 26 years old? All of that's true. And it was a huge blessing. Have you read Sam Zell's book? He's a huge invest in warehouse space and RV parks and mobile home parks. He's a huge investor. And in his book, he was says for his first deal, he was successful because he didn't know he shouldn't have been. And it's the exact same thing. I was driving across the country in a camper from Florida to California. And I thought, hey, it's just renting parking spots. I started Google searching RV parks for sale, you know, campgrounds for sale. And I found one in the tourist town near where I lived. So I called the local bank and this was after the market had collapsed. So banks were willing to do loans in ways that they weren't previously and that they aren't now for things that they still had on their books, because let's get real, banks don't want to operate properties. So any amount of money they're getting paid is better than the no money they're getting paid when they're trying to operate themselves. I call them and I'm like, I want to buy this. And they said, okay, how much money do you have? And I'm like, I don't have any. And it was $3.2 million. And long story short, they gave me a non-recourse loan with no money down. But I had to figure out how to run an RV park. And my first payment was $18,500. And I had never paid more than a normal payment before in my life. Kind of a freak out moment and a little bit of motivation to be like, okay, I got to figure this out. For those listening that aren't sure the difference between recourse and non-recourse loans, break that down for us. 
Yeah. So if you think of it like your family home that you live in, if you were to not pay your payment and the bank decides it's going to take it back, you're going to have to file for bankruptcy and they're going to take that back. That is your recourse that you're going to lose the home and you're probably going to have to file for bankruptcy if you stop paying all your bills. Non-recourse means I could simply change my mind and be like, here you go, you can have it back. And there would be no repercussions. So that sounds like a pretty crazy, especially in today's world, that sounds like a pretty crazy opportunity that you had with that bank. What kind of bank was it? Was it a small community bank, a small credit union? And why? It is. It's, it's a local bank. And I always tell my students that building those relationships with local banks when you're getting started is going to be make it or break it for your investing career because you're not just a number like you are when you, you know, the big banks like Wells Fargo or Chase or whoever, they care nothing about you. And you're one of a billion customers and you're just a number. So building those relationships with those small local banks is make it or break it. So what did the terms look like on the loan? I don't even know. Like I didn't know enough to even understand the terms. I didn't know enough to even know I was buying real estate because most RV park owners think of themselves as business owners. They don't realize that they also own real estate because unlike multifamily or the normal asset classes that we're used to buying, RV parks are this interesting mix between real estate and a business. We've got 10 to 12 different streams of income and all of these operations. So it's not the passive real estate investment that you're used to. But because of that, it's like this perfect world with cash flow and appreciation that you don't get in some other asset classes. How did you make that first payment? So there were people living there in their campers. There were 100 people living there with refrigerators and mailboxes outside. And they were paying $300 a month. And that included everything. It wasn't anywhere near enough to pay all of the bills. And so luckily, I had a small savings and was able to get through that first couple of months of paying, but that was going to run out quick. I knew enough to be dangerous about things like Google AdWords and pay for clicks and social media. So before everybody was putting their stuff on Facebook and you could still grow organically, again, this was 11 years ago, I created a Facebook account and worked really hard to build that up to... I think it got up to like 30,000 people for campers, which was a lot back then. And using Google AdWords and pay for clicks and it being in a tourist town quickly had lots of customers for camping and things like that and had to graduate. And I made the rates super cheap to bring those first year of customers in. Was it a campground that could be... I think you said it was in the South, right? So was it something that could be used year round? That property is 10 months. So it's in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which is a huge booming tourist town now. Not that there weren't tourists back then, but that town has grown enormously in the last couple of years. But it's about a 10-month season. January, February, there isn't really anybody there. It's snowing. However, in an RV park, there are so many moving parts and your occupancy is so high in season that you need those two months to clean everything up, make repairs, deep clean the cabins to get you going into that next season. So you need that little bit of downtime. A little bit of a spoiler alert, but do you still own it today? I do. It's crazy. So from the $3.2 million that I paid for it 11 years ago, it is now worth $13 million. Wow. Talk about some appreciation. <laughs> right? Yeah. And is that from mostly you being able to drive up NOI and increase the profitability of the property? Yeah. It's a mix between obviously you know, things are going to grow anyway. 
as time goes on, we talk about long-term holds, you know, even if you mess up a little bit when you buy it, if you plan on keeping it for the long term, it'll eventually make up for it. So it's a little bit of that mixed with operations. Operations is the key to being successful with something like an RV park and adding all those extra streams of revenue, as well as dynamic pricing with your software and being able to manage those rates and maximizing your occupancy through all of that. So all of those management and operations are make it or break it for your income in that type of business. Some people listening to the show maybe have no experience with campgrounds or anything like that. So they might not know that it's kind of, it's not great to have refrigerators out in these campsites. (laughs) So, but I do, I've spent a lot of times in campgrounds and in RVs and camping and doing things like that. So I know that that's definitely not great. So I'm guessing that's one of the first things you did when you got in there was kind of clean up some of that stuff, but talk to us a bit more about what you did to kind of revitalize this campground. So I think what you're talking about is a lot of people who aren't campers themselves They assume that mobile home parks and RV parks are very close to the same thing. And while they're both land that you rent the site or the lot, they are very different. RV parks that are short-term RV parks, which is what we're talking about, are vacation rentals, essentially. They operate just like an Airbnb might. People's average stay is three days. They're coming there. These people have campers that cost more than some people's houses. You know, some of them are multi-million dollar buses. So these are people who are on vacation with their family for a couple of days and they're looking for that kind of nice outdoor hospitality resort feel when they go somewhere like that. And they're paying between fifty and a hundred dollars a night for their site that includes their hookups of like power, water, sewer, things like that. Usually there's pools and some activities and more, but that's the gist of it. A mobile home park is where people have a trailer. And they live there as affordable housing. Now, there are a few in places like Florida and California that are people's kind of second home and they're very, very nice mobile home parks, but that's not what most of them are. There are long-term RV parks where people live for affordable housing, but that is less common than what we're talking about with that kind of short-term outdoor hospitality resort. So imagine you're taking your family on vacation in your very nice camper and you pull up and the people next to you have everything they own outside, including their refrigerator. And you know they've got tarps everywhere and it's just not a good scene. That's not going to work for people who are on vacation. So when I first bought the property, I found this city ordinance that didn't allow refrigerators or tarps outside. Something to do with kids getting in them and getting stuck and potentially which is a real risk. And so I was able to evict most of them based on them violating the city ordinances and being unwilling to clean up. Obviously, we gave them the opportunity to clean up and all of those things, but most of them were able to be evicted due to that. Was it like a true eviction process like you would for, say, any normal rental property? So different states have different laws on that. And that one, because the people had been living there for so long, they were considered residents. So you'll even notice in some states when you're a camper, they won't let you stay at a site for more than two weeks. Maybe you can check back in and stay on a different site if you want to stay longer than that, but they don't want to risk you turning into a resident and having rights like somebody who would live there. The laws are different depending on what state you're in. So given that, I'm assuming you probably don't do seasonal sites? No, I don't do seasonal sites. However, seasonal sites are really a great method for parks and a lot of parks in the north do this. People rent a site for a season and they'll pay, you know, a couple thousand bucks and they can come and go. 
But most of the time, those parks have a requirement that somebody has a second home. And those kind of operate like a lake house. People will drive, you know, an hour or so and go visit it every weekend. And that's kind of where they hang out. But there's always that requirement of they have a second home. So they're not running into that same risk. That's exactly what my parents do. So for the first about, I'm 27. So for the first 17, 18 years of my life, we would go to a campground up north here in New Hampshire. And we would just go for a week or so every year in the summer. And then after that, my dad was like, you know, I want to do this more than just once a year. And so he ended up going seasonal at a campground just down the street. And he did exactly like you said, he pays like three or $4,000 for the year, but he has his camper there all year. And yeah, now he can go basically anytime he wants. So for the last 10 years, we've been able to kind of just go up there. It's like kind of like a cheaper way to have a lake house, basically. Exactly. And there's also a lot more community involved in it. Oftentimes when you have a lake house, you know, you're kind of secluded into yourself. It's not a community environment. So most of the people who enjoy doing that are people who want to hang out with their buddies. Like it's common. Like in Wisconsin, almost every campground has a bar. (laughs) And so everybody's hanging out at the bar and they're all buddies and BFFs that they go hang out with on the weekend. So it's a lot, lot more community involvement. It's funny because that's exactly how this is. Like literally, I think my dad was the first of his friend group to move in there. And then obviously he made friends and, you know, met people while he was there as well. But then five, six, seven, eight of his buddies all got campers there, all seasonal there now. And pretty much my dad's friend group almost runs the whole campground now. And it's, it's funny because wherever you are in the U.S., it sounds like it's kind of pretty similar. Yeah. Well, other than in the South, it's more like a hunting camp or deer camp or fishing camp. You know, it's usually related to one of those activities, but it's the same idea. What's interesting about one of the things you mentioned that I really hadn't given much thought until right now was that you talk about how if you're there for X period of time, that's too long, you have these rights. And I never really gave much thought to that. But my dad does get a tax bill from the town every year for his spot. Yeah. And all different counties and cities all operate different ways, but there's always some version of it. If you're there over X amount of time, this is no longer a vacation. Yeah, it's really interesting. The other thing... I believe you briefly mentioned that you implemented maybe some software and just got more modern management. And I want to hear a bit more about that because all of my experience with campgrounds, at least here in the Northeast, and specifically the one that I have a lot of experience with at my dad's campground is they're just so old school. Like this guy has owned it. I don't know for how long, but like decades and decades, probably 30, 40, 50 years. And it's like, oh yeah, go to the, you know, the office and pay your cash for your weekend. You know, we'll write it on our little notebook and that's how we'll record our accounting. And so I want to hear a little bit more about the kind of modern technological kind of advancements that you've made with your campgrounds. It's interesting that you word it that way, because as of last year and the new statistics haven't come out yet, 88% of RV parks are mom and pop owned. And it works exactly like you're talking about. And even when you're trying to purchase them, sometimes it can be difficult because their bookkeeping is like, and I don't know about that because you can't take their word for it with the cash that they say they're taking in. And so it's one of the deterrents for some people trying to figure out how to invest in them. However, that is the huge advantage when you're trying to figure that out. Because if you go in and you update some basic operational issues like software and proper accounting, you can dramatically increase the value with that low-hanging fruit instead of big hauls of you know massive capital to remodel and things like that. Not that you don't oftentimes need to remodel, but it's not the same when you can make small operational changes to dramatically increase your revenue. And some of them that we're talking about are dynamic pricing. So for people who aren't familiar with dynamic pricing, it's the same thing that a hotel or an airline would do. You know, when your occupancy is low, your price is going to be less. And the higher your occupancy grows, the higher your price increases. 
So for example, at that original property we were talking about, my base price is about $50. And every 10% of occupancy, my price increases 10%. So that last site is going to be double the price was when the occupancy was low. Or maybe you have special event weekends or holiday weekends, and the prices are going to be higher. It's a very simple concept. But instead of having to manually figure that out, the software is going to automatically generate those prices, as well as things that are as simple as online booking. You would be shocked how many RV parks do not take online reservations. And with the younger generations, if I can't figure something out online to book, I'm moving on to the next park. I'm not calling and leaving a message and waiting two or three days for them to call me back. I'm ready to plan my trip now. And so you'd be surprised by how many parks don't do online booking with their websites. And then the third and final thing that's a huge deal with the software is occupancy optimization. So if you think of it like a grid or Tetris, most of the time you'll see like your site numbers on one column and your dates at the top. Long time ago, before these sophisticated softwares came out, as owners, we would have to like move people around to maximize our occupancy manually, sitting there staring at it to get an extra, say, 500 bucks. And let's get real, most employees aren't going to do that. So unless you're the person that owns the park sitting in there doing it yourself, you're losing out on thousands of dollars. And so if you use site optimization with your software, it automatically moves people around to maximize that occupancy and results in a ton of extra money. I think my income growth was like 40% the first year when I implemented that software. And for those who have been listening to the show for a while, you probably have heard this us talk about this on a past episode with Travis about short-term rentals. This is very, very common in the short-term rental space. So I'm not surprised to hear that it's kind of made it to another campgrounds, really. And if in its essence, it's short-term rentals, right? It's just a different... It is. It's so much similar. It's like having 133 short-term rentals in one place is how that property operates. Especially there's glamping tents, there's tiny homes, there's rental campers, which you were talking about earlier, and there's the RV sites. So you're essentially running a giant short-term rental property. The online booking is another thing that I've actually had a bit of experience with. So my dad's campground, they don't do any online booking. So Usually I'll just stay with him, but I do own an RV myself. So occasionally I'd want a spot and I'd tell him like, oh, like just send me the website. I'll go on and book a site and I'll have it for the weekend. He's like, oh no, you got to wait till you come here and you know pay cash. I'm like, oh my God. And then the other piece was that I just, I literally yesterday got home from a month long road trip. I was gone for an entire month in the RV. And as part of my trip, I didn't stay in a campground every night, but I stayed every other couple nights just to empty kind of the waste tanks. I was trying to find these campgrounds and it, I was absolutely shocked because I drove from New Hampshire to Florida. I was absolutely shocked how many campgrounds did not offer online booking. It just seemed like such an easy thing. And I needed that because I might have been after hours or before hours or it just didn't work. And I needed that online booking and they just didn't offer it. It's amazing that you say that. So I went for, I drove 6,000 miles from Key West out to California over the summer. I pulled an Airstream and kind of the same idea. And it's more common out West, I've found that like nobody has a website and you're not finding them. And everyone's stopping and staying in truck stop parking lots because they can't find something. You're exactly right. It needs to be implemented. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. 
I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. One of the other things that intrigues me about RV parks and campgrounds as an asset class is from my relatively limited research, it seems like seller financing is actually a bit more common in this kind of niche than it is with other types of real estate, specifically residential real estate that a lot of people listening to the show are are into. So have you leveraged this type of financing at all in any of your deals? I mean, in theory, kind of the bank deal was kind of a seller financing in a sense. Yeah. But <laughs> other than that, have you done any other yeah. seller financing? Yeah, so- You're exactly right. Seller financing is a lot more common in RV parks and mobile home parks. And there's a couple of reasons. Normally, when you're buying multifamily or maybe you invest in single family homes, the person who owns it usually has debt on it and they haven't owned it for multiple generations. So seller financing probably isn't even available. Or these people are investors themselves and they plan on taking the money and doing a 1031 exchange and going and buying something else. It's a different person that you're buying it from. If you remember earlier, I talked about how most people don't realize that they even own real estate. They think of this like a business. And oftentimes, it's been in their family for five or six generations. And it's all that they know. And they don't owe anything on the property. And so if you have a really great pitch to explain to them what seller financing is, because initially, they're going to say no, because they don't understand it. But if you get a really great pitch where you can explain to them you're going to pay most of this money in capital gains tax if I give it all to you today. Here is the payment that you would get every month for the next X amount of years. And here's the extra million bucks you're going to make in interest that the bank would be making instead if I continue to pay you payments. So unless you have a plan that you're going to do with this money, here's why it would be beneficial to you. So having that really easy to understand pitch 
for seller financing makes it really easy. And I don't want to make people think that like every deal is going to be willing to sell or finance. It's still rare. Needle in the haystack. You're going to have to ask 100 people before one of them say yes. But it is definitely way more common than going to get a multifamily that's owner finance basically doesn't happen in today's world. RV parks, mobile home parks is a bigger chance. Yeah, that's exactly kind of what my research has said. I haven't done it myself yet, but that's kind of what my research has said. What do the terms look like typically on those seller finance deals on these RV parks or campgrounds? It's interesting that you ask that because it's what everybody asks. And it's because we're used to banks where these are the parameters and they're mostly not negotiable because they're controlled by some higher body of whoever that's saying, this is what exactly what you can do. Owner financing is like the Wild West. They can ask for anything, whether it's they want half the money down or they want no money down, whether they want a crazy interest rate or they're willing to do it at a low interest rate. Sometimes it's only for two or three years, just long enough for you to get regular traditional financing. Sometimes it's 20 years and there's a prepayment penalty and they don't want you to get a traditional loan. There is no set method for owner financing. It's all negotiable. And if that's something that you really want, you need to listen to what the owner is telling you they need. If they're 95 years old, you know, likely they're thinking this is going to be passed down to their family, meaning that what you're paying is going to then roll over to their children. And they like the idea of them getting payments for the next 20 years instead of one chunk of money that they might blow. So you got to really pay attention to what the owner tells you that their needs are. Maybe they're 60 and ready to retire and they want that long chunk of money. Maybe they aren't that interested in it. And three years from now, they want you to refinance so that they do get that chunk of money. You really got to listen to what they want and structure it so that it's appealing to them. With my small residential rental properties, the most important metrics that I personally look at are the cash on cash return and the monthly cash flow per door. How do you analyze a potential campground or RV park investment? What are the most important metrics that you're looking for? RV parks are more of an art than a science when you're evaluating them. There are so many more moving parts than when you're looking at small multifamily or single family homes because of all those different revenue streams we were talking about and a ton of different expenses that you might not find in other asset classes. And they're also sold on a cap rate instead of like price per square foot or like comps. There's not necessarily comps in the area all of the time. For example, if we keep talking about the Pigeon Forge property that I have, you know, if I would have tried to sell that five years ago, there might not have been that many transactions in the area to compare it to. So an appraiser is going to look at things like maybe Branson, Missouri is very similar to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. So looking at comps in other areas because they're towns that are similar. You've got to be able to look through their profit and loss statement and know what's missing. A lot of times it's payroll because mom and pop aren't paying themselves, or maybe they've got three or four extra family members on payroll that aren't real. Maybe pop's truck is tied in there and like doesn't actually need it. So you're kind of digging through, and that's the art of it, figuring out what should and shouldn't be there in that profit and loss statement. And then they're valued on a cap rate. So again, very different than your traditional single family home. Yeah. Are there any specific metrics like cash on cash or what is your and cap so rate? You- Yeah. And so you're looking at cash on cash and you definitely want a better cash on cash return than you would see. You know, you hear in bigger pockets, you'll hold and sometimes talk about for smaller multifamily or single family homes, like 8% is like the bottom of what you would want, like 13, 14% is like a great. What do you usually look for for yours? I personally don't really get interested into like 20, 25%. Yeah. That sounds more like short term rental returns to me. 
people usually talk about 20% or higher for short-term rentals. And you're going to want the same thing for an RV park, unless it's a class A in a tourist destination and you're really there for an appreciation play. What do you look for when you're going to analyze a campground? And if you're going to walk one, maybe you see one that you're potentially interested in buying. What are the certain things that you're looking for that tell you it might be a good deal? And then what are some of the red flags that turn you away? You see something in a campground, you're like, okay, I I want nothing to do with this. Maybe it's location. Maybe it's the amenities. Talk us through a little bit your walkthrough process. So the top three things that I'm looking for first is going to be that location because you cannot change that. So what's the demand like for that location? Also, how many acres is it? Am I able to expand or am I tapped out? Because you want to know how much more value add there is left. And third, I want to know about their utilities. Ideally, I want them to have city water and city sewer. If they had a well and city sewer, I would consider it. If they had septic and city water, I would consider it. But I really don't want things like wastewater treatment plants and lagoons and you know lift stations and some of these more complicated forms of dealing with the sewage because those can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and sometimes more than the value of your property if something goes wrong with those. You know, Utility side of it is kind of make it or break it with your deal. What determines if you can expand? Obviously, you have to have the land available, of course, but like, is there, I know you can't, let's say residential, you can't just go build another building right behind your house if just because you have the land, like there's a lot that goes into that. So is it kind of the same with campgrounds? Do you need permitting and things like that to add additional spots? Or if you have the land, you can make more spots. It's all going to be different depending on where you're at in the country. Some country has, some places in the country have stricter zoning laws and rules. You're exactly right. Just because you have the land doesn't mean you can do something with it. So oftentimes you'll see people when they're going through due diligence on an RV park, they will go ahead and start trying to go through that process with city planning and zoning, figuring out if they can expand, which you need drawings from a civil engineer to go present to the city planning board to figure out if they're going to let you expand the property. And it's not just that. Sometimes it's the cost. One of the properties that I own, and this is actually the only deal I've ever made an offer on that I was the one who backed out. And it was five acres that was attached to a property I already owned. And during due diligence, we started doing exactly what I'm telling you about. We started getting the engineering drawings drawn out and planning for our city board meeting. And it turned out that I was going to need over a million dollars in dirt just to get the land level enough for the city to approve RV sites being put there, which put us at like, I don't know, $120,000 per site to build it out. And there's no way we were doing that in that location. Sometimes it's even your expenses of what it will cost to develop in that area. Did you look at the payback period on that? Because if I'm thinking 120,000 per spot, that's going to take a long time to get paid. Oh yeah. I can't remember exactly how the numbers turned out, but it was like you said, it's so long that you're like, my money is way better spent somewhere else. This is not worth it. I had a guest on the show recently. His name's Paul Moore back on episode 108. And we talked about how you can increase the net operating income and the value of your property specifically for self-storage by adding other products and services like U-Haul and some other things like that. What types of products or services do you add to your campgrounds that increase the income and the value of your parks? So it's very similar when you talk about those things that self-storage adds. And you know you can add things like golf cart rentals are a huge value add. Your camp store, that original park that I was telling you about has a very small camp store. And that small camp store takes in over $200,000 a year. The laundry room, you essentially have a whole laundry room business 
laundromat business inside your property where you're either collecting quarters. If you've updated your machines, it's, it's digital, but that's a whole separate revenue stream in business. You talked about rental campers. That's a great side hustle with it. I have a couple of rental campers. I think I have six now at that original property. And they're each bringing in $30,000 a year, each rental camper. You've got the tiny homes. The tiny homes at that property bring in over half a million bucks a year. You've got the glamping side of it. So I've got 15 glamping tents at that property. And again, they're doing great. There's all kinds of different revenue streams that you can add to the property to increase the value. You mentioned the campground stores. I have a lot of fond memories over my last 27 years of, of going to campgrounds in those little campground stores. And they're usually these tiny little shops and they have candy. And I know for me as a kid, I was always asking my dad for dollars or quarters and I'd run up to the store and buy as much candy as I possibly could. Exactly. There's candy, there's ice cream. You know, there's most campgrounds also have some sort of food that that property has a pizza kitchen. You know, there's different trinkets and toys for sale that the kids have. But then there's also the camping supplies. You know, people forget their sewer hoses, they forget their water hoses, they forget their coax cable. So those are also some of your bigger ticket items that you're selling. In addition to campgrounds and RV parks, you also invest in mobile home parks and Section 8 multifamily properties. Up until relatively recently, you didn't really hear a lot about people investing in mobile home parks. You also don't really hear a lot of people talking about investing in RV parks or campgrounds right now. So do you think that campgrounds are going to gain traction and become a more popular asset class, similar to how mobile home parks have in recent years? Absolutely. They seem to have already done that. The number of institutions that have contacted me and say, how do we make money off of this type of property is increasing dramatically. And so it's an asset class that is starting to get that recognition. So if it's something you're interested in, you need to figure it out now before the cap rates go to a number that regular people can't purchase. Mobile home parks have already done that. Sometimes you'll see mobile home parks sell for a 4% cap rate. And if you don't understand cap rates, you know that's basically cheaper than the interest rate that we can get right now on them. So if you're a regular person, you can't purchase those. You've got to have debt that's so cheap that it's not relevant. And only those large institutions are able to do that. I know it probably varies from property to property, location to location, but what generally cap rate are you buying at? Really depends on the park and how much deferred maintenance they have and what their location is. The offer that we put in last week was a 6% cap rate, but that was a tourist town, perfect class A park that had over 300 sites. If you're looking at something that's in, you know, maybe a B market and it's still a really great property, but needs a little bit of value add, it's not uncommon to see those eight, nine, 10% calf rates, but you're not going to get that perfect park in a perfect town at a 10%. I know you were recently on the Bigger Pockets rookie podcast, and I am friends with Ashley Kerr, the host of and Tony, but also Ashley. And specifically, Ashley, I know, has taken an interest in campgrounds recently. Do you think you were kind of that push to get her into campgrounds or do you think that was kind of a separate kind of? Actually, I think when I met Ashley, that is how I met her. She sent me a message on Instagram and she's like, Hey, <laughs> I'm interested in RV parks. And when I did that episode, she was talking about kind of same as you. This is kind of self-serving, but I'm super interested in RV parks because she'd made an offer on one and lost on it, but had been aggressively trying to find another one. Yeah, we were going back and forth and she was mentioning, she's like, because she was in a lot of different asset classes. So she's like, I really want to decide, focus on one. And then a couple of weeks later, she came back and she's like, campgrounds, like that's what I want to focus on. And I didn't really understand where that came from at the time. But now 
having noticed that you're on the show. And I was like, oh, I wonder if she was influential in that decision. Yeah, I think she made an offer on something. I haven't heard her say how it turned out, but I know, like you said, she's doing a couple different things right now. After that first park you bought with essentially seller financing from the bank, what have you done for financing for future parks? What are the terms, down payments, things like that look like? Somebody's listening to this and it's probably like, all right, campgrounds sound pretty cool. Maybe I'm interested. Maybe I want to get started, but how do I actually finance this? I'm not going to be able to do the same deal that Heather did on her first one. What can I expect if I go to get a loan today from a local bank or credit union? The difference is going to be in a local bank or credit union, they're typically going to have a lower like LTV, meaning they're going to give you probably 80% uh, financing. But their interest rate is going to be a little bit higher than if you were to get some kind of agency debt or go through a professional loan broker. And so my mastermind students were learning about exactly this last week. And we had one of the guys that's a, a loan broker come on and talk to us about it. He's at more like 70 to 75%. So you're going to have to bring a higher down payment. But his interest rates are significantly different depending on what... And, and also his terms are longer. So you know you might get a 25 or 30-year loan with him, where with the local bank, you're probably going to get 20 years. Whether your pain point is how much money you're paying as a down payment or having that better interest rate, you, know, you kind of got to work your numbers out and decide which works better for you. But I always stick with the local bank. Having that relationship with them has been amazing for my investing career. So is it safe to say that if we're going to look to buy a RV park or campground, we're probably going to need somewhere in the ballpark of 20 to 30% down? Yes, which causes some people to go out and find partners or maybe private money to make up that difference. Because you know RV parks aren't hundred dollars or $200,000 single family homes. They are an expensive RV park is going to be like half a million bucks, but even like a decent park is going to be multiple millions of dollars. So that down payment can get pretty hefty, which is why people usually do partnerships or private money. Can you burr essentially a campground? And what does the financing look like in that kind of structure? Because I've been able to buy a couple rental properties with essentially $0 down because I burred it. So I'm curious if you could kind of do the same thing on a bigger scale with campground. Absolutely. That is what I have done to build my portfolio from that original park up to $30 million without any outside investors. That first park that we talked about being $3 million and now worth $13 million, I'm able to pull the equity from that property, which is essentially doing a burr, out of it and then go buy the next property. I am under contract on a small motel by the beach. I'm super excited about boutique hotels right now. So I'm on the, under contract on a property that is a block from the beach in Florida, and I'm pulling the equity from one of my other properties to then go buy that. You mentioned earlier that campgrounds are actually quite different than mobile home parks. But I'm curious, did you kind of make the transition from campgrounds to mobile home parks because initially you thought they were going to be similar and then you were kind of surprised that they weren't? Talk us through kind of that mindset of how you went from one asset class to the other and then how you were kind of surprised that they were different if you were. Yeah. So like I said in the beginning, I didn't understand I had bought real estate. I was thinking of it as a business. And about six years in, once I got really great at RV parks, I decided this is not something I want to do during retirement. This is not a retirement job. This is very active. And I was a broker at the time also. And I covered the US and Canada. And I did about $300 million in transactions for RV parks and mobile home parks. And learning more about mobile home parks during that time, I realized that mobile home parks are kind of like RV parks, only they are truly mailbox money. So the idea was... Someday I will want to sell those parks because I won't want that active of an investment. And I want something that I can keep as my retirement. In the mobile home parks, 
even though they don't have as much cash on cash return, they're really great mailbox money for when you're retired and getting that money every month. So that was kind of my Section 8 multifamily that you were talking about. And my mobile home parks was the idea of these are the ones that I'll keep and have my passive income when I'm tired of doing this. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. One of my main focuses right now for my investing is long-distance rental properties. And the most common question I get, anytime I talk about long distance rentals, people say, well, have you ever been to your properties? Do you go to your properties? Like, what does that look like? So I'm curious to kind of flip that question to you is, do you go to all your campgrounds? Do you stay in them? Do you go there before you buy them? What does that process look like? It's interesting you asked that because I had the same question yesterday. It seems to be common. And I have one property that I've never seen and I've owned it for two years now. Generally on RV parks, because they're larger purchases, I will go to the property before I buy it. I do not go before I make an offer. I do not go before I decide how much I want to pay, but I go during that due diligence process and make sure that I've got all my numbers written out accurately and it's exactly what I think it is. Do I stay at them? I stay at one of them. I don't usually stay at the rest. 
And I think when you were talking about you not hearing about people buying mobile home parks or Section 8 or RV parks, it kind of ties into that because it's sexy or exciting to say that you own like luxury Airbnb properties or these fabulous condos in some great city. In reality, mobile home parks and RV parks make way more money than those types of properties do, but they're not something that people want to brag about and take their friends to. You may not always own properties that you want to stay in, but that doesn't mean they aren't a great investment and make great money. A good friend of mine, he's in his 30s and his whole life, he had no idea that his dad owned, I forget the exact number, but it was like three or four. Like He just found out like a couple months ago that his dad's like, oh yeah, by the way, I own this campground and this campground and, and that campground. And he had no idea in his 30s, he had no clue. So, I mean, I think it's like you said, it's just not sexy. So his dad never was just like, and he doesn't stay in them like you just said. So he's just like never probably bragged about it or, or mentioned it. I'm sure he's, a, I know his dad, he's a humble guy anyway, but it's just like, you don't brag about having a nice beachfront condo in Florida. You know what I mean? It's just different. When it's not things that the general person who doesn't invest in real estate cares anything about, unless they're a camper, they don't care anything about that. It's almost everyone's like, ooh, a beach house. But pretty much no one, if you're not a camper, is like, ooh, a campground. So, so how about on the other side? One of the things that worries me is about these like kind of sexy strategies, specifically Airbnb. I've had the interest in getting started in them recently, but I've kind of held off on pulling the trigger just because I'm worried about not even so much a recession, but just the industry or the asset class as a whole kind of getting heated. So I'm curious what your experience is and what you think and how you think campgrounds will hold up if a recession hits or something like that. I think mobile home parks will do really well, but I'm curious about the campground part. So there's two things I think of that way. First of all, if you have a single family home and your tenant leaves, you're screwed. There's no money coming in. In an RV park, you have a lot of spaces and you have occupancy. So right now where the parks are at these higher occupancies and we're making great money, most of us, if our occupancy was cut in half, which is extremely dramatic, you know, it's not likely going to be cut in half. You're still paying all the bills and not losing your property. You know, maybe you're not rolling in the money, but everyone's still okay. So you could dramatically reduce occupancy and still be fine. Second, the statistics show that in a recession, when something like that is happening, people don't stop going on vacation. They change the way they vacation. They go on cheaper trips. They drive to places closer to home instead of buying a bunch of plane tickets. And a lot of times, RV parks are able to be that affordable vacation for them. They don't necessarily suffer in a recession like that luxury beach rental might because it's then too expensive. The third strategy that we've hinted at that you embrace or invest in is Section 8. And I've found that Section 8 investing is actually a little bit of a polarizing strategy for many real estate investors. Some love it. They swear by it. Others absolutely hate it, say they will never go near it with a 10-foot pole. But it seems like you've had some good luck with it. So I want to talk a bit about that. First, explain to us what Section 8 investing is for those who aren't familiar, and then tell us why you chose this niche of residential rentals to focus on. It's so interesting you word it that way, because when I make TikTok videos related to Section 8, I have like a thousand comments of people calling me a slumlord and like all these crazy main things. And then I have a thousand people being like, oh, that's kind of interesting. How do you do that? So it's like a love-hate relationship. And I have the same relationship with student housing. I owned 19 beds of student housing for a while and I've hated it. But you will meet a million people who make tons of money in student housing and love it. 
And my point with saying that is you kind of got to pick your poison because everything's going to have a negative side to it and figure out what you do and don't want to deal with. And I did not want to deal with students who needed their light bulbs changed and would call me at two o'clock in the morning for petty crap. You're not going to get that with Section 8 housing. So I bought my first Section 8 property, I think it was six years ago now, and it was a duplex. And then I bought uh, seven more units of it and kind of kept buying. And what it is, it's government subsidized housing, essentially. People who are either low income or have some sort of issue with paying their own bills will apply for a voucher. It's a voucher program. And the government agrees to pay a specific amount of money for those people. Sometimes they pay all of their rent. Sometimes they pay a portion of their rent. It varies depending on the tenant that you have. And so the government direct deposits the money on the first of every month into your bank account and the tenant pays their remainder. Before you get excited about some kind of side hustle with that, if you don't make the tenant pay their portion, it is illegal to accept the government's section. So it's still very similar to having to collect rent and things like that. And talking about some people hating it and loving it, the stigma is, well, don't they tear up your property or it's all in, you know, they're going to ruin it. You know, people tear up any kind of property. You know, you have that issue even when it's not Section 8. But what I have found is a lot of these people, they have been on that wait list with Section 8 for up to two years waiting for housing. Some of them were homeless before they got to that, meaning they're living on couches. Some of them have been living in churches. And they are so excited to have their own place to live that they do not want to be kicked out of that program. Because if they mess up your property, they are kicked out of this Section 8 program that they have waited to be in. So a lot of them are really appreciative and really great tenants. And don't... I have over 100 units of that at this point. So don't get me wrong. There's definitely bad apples in that, but there's bad apples in every asset class. My understanding is that you can still screen your tenants, like just because you have a yeah. Section Eight, right? Like you, you have a Section Eight property, but that doesn't mean you have to accept the first Section Eight tenant that applies. You can still screen your tenants. Absolutely, and that's the number one thing that I teach: screen every tenant. It doesn't matter if they're coming from Section Eight. You still want to do the background check, and if you do the background check and they had a horrible record, like ten years ago, and you're like, "Oh, they've been clean for ten years. Make sure they didn't just come out of prison." Unless that's your method. I met a mobile home park owner. That was her thing. And she only ran into people straight out of prison and she made great money. That was her version of rentals. But yeah, make sure that you're screening those tenants. Remember that it is affordable housing and nobody's perfect. So kind of have your guidelines. For example, one of my guidelines is they cannot have had an eviction within the last seven years because that's kind of leaning towards that. Are they going to tear up my stuff and not pay and things like that? And then you got to kind of have a guideline for criminal history too, because they're likely not going to have the most perfect criminal past. I'm glad you mentioned those guidelines because I was going to ask that because with a traditional tenant, typically one of the biggest kind of guidelines is that income. Typically, a lot of investors are looking at three times the rent for their gross income to be able to qualify for the rental. But with Section 8, a lot of times they might not have income or they're not required to pay. Like you said, they're not required to pay the rent themselves. So I was wondering, like, what are those important things that you look at? So I'm glad you mentioned those. And you also mentioned TikTok. And I just want to briefly touch on that because I don't make a lot of content on TikTok, mostly because of those bad comments that you mentioned. I have some friends. People are mean. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, Instagram, 99% of my comments are really nice. They're really great. Occasionally, you'll get a bad one here and there. But when I look at some of my friends that are big on TikTok like yourself, but like Tony Robinson uh, from The Rookie Show and then also Derek uh, flipping a house. Those guys, like they're great guys. Like I know them. They are genuinely good people and they just get some of the absolute worst comments ever. They're insane. Like 
I think I have 70,000 followers on TikTok right now. And a lot of them are like, you're not that hot. You're like, no one said I was hot. I'm not over here in a bikini. We're talking about real estate. This is unrelated. It's so ruthless. Or they're like, you're a witch that should be burned at the stake. You're like, what? That's really aggressive. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They're mean. It's rough. They're mean. It's rough for sure. We've talked so far throughout this conversation all about the good parts of campgrounds, RV parks, mobile home parks, and Section 8 rentals. But now I want to talk a bit about the downsides and headaches of, of all of them. Like you mentioned, you said in a recent video that all asset classes have their headaches and investors really just need to pick their poison. Talk to us a bit about the downsides, risks, and headaches of all the different asset classes that we've talked about today that you have experience with. So if we talk about RV parks and the quote unquote downside, two things come to mind. First, it's going to be like we talked about, it is not a passive investment. Yes, there's the option of, you know, when we talk about multifamily, some people hire management companies. There aren't a lot of great management company options in the space right now. I, for example, live in Florida and most of my parks are in Tennessee. And so I self manage, but I manage my managers at this point. But it's still, I've probably missed over 100 text messages since we've been recording this podcast because it's always something. It's not passive. So that would be if somebody wasn't really excited about it and didn't like doing this, it's not really passive. The second thing that comes to mind is it's very much customer service and you cannot make everybody happy. So you're going to have people... I think my most recent one was somebody who was enraged with anger over a spider in their tent. And you're just like, dude, you're, you're camping. camping. What in is the wilderness. wrong with you? Yeah. What is wrong with you? You're in the woods in a tent. You know, You can't make everybody happy. And it's not like the long-term tenant that maybe you have this long-term tenant that complains about something every month when they pay their rent. That's once a month. These people are talking to you every day. I can remember when I decided that I was no longer the person that was meant to be in the office because I started hanging up on people. (laughs) And it's a (laughs) vacation for a lot of people, right? So they have really high standards. They have very high expectations. And even if like the weather is bad, it's your fault. You know, I had one complaint of like, it's muddy. I'm like, it's rained for seven days and you're at a campground. Yeah, there's going to be some mud. Like, that's part of it. And, and not that your sites shouldn't be gravel or paved and that part's not muddy, but there's going to be some mud. Meeting people's expectations when they're on vacation, like you said, that's tough. And you're going to have to deal with the customer service side of that. And that's downside of it is relative. Things that are negative to one person might not be negative to the other. And so those two things don't bother me at all. I'm more than happy to manage my managers. It makes me excited and I love doing it. But to some people, that may not be what they want to do. If you were going to start over today and you had to pick one of the asset classes that you're now involved in, which would you choose and why? I have two answers for you because I would choose RV parks for sure because of that perfect mix between cash flow and appreciation. However, not everyone that's getting started is going to have the down payment or the partnership option to go and buy an RV park. And a lot of times it's tough to find a partner or private money if you don't have any experience at all yet. So if you already have some experience, I would for sure say RV parks. However, if you're just getting started and you don't have that massive down payment, I would start out with short-term rentals. Because if you buy one of those Airbnbs or short-term rentals, the cash flow is so great that if you can budget and save that money to go buy your next property, you'll be able to scale quicker. And most people are trying to get out of that hustle of the everyday 9 to 5. You can do that much quicker with short-term rentals. We've talked a bit about RV parks and campgrounds. I just want to clarify quickly here. Are those the same? Are they slightly different? How do you view those? 
I think of the term as interchangeable. However, and then one of the reasons I think of it as interchangeable because the industry does. It shouldn't be. But just because something calls it an RV resort does not mean that it is actually an RV resort. They just chose to use that name. Or just because they call themselves a campground doesn't mean it isn't a resort. That term is kind of loose in our industry. So in my mind, a campground is more like what you might find at a national park. And an RV park is more like something with a paved site. They've probably got a pool, definitely full hookups. You know, It's nice and clean, looks kind of like a park. But in our industry, they, they're not really defined. That's kind of what my expectation was. But I just wanted to make sure that I didn't have a misinformed definition of those two different terms. For people who can't see the video or just listening to the audio version on the podcast, not on YouTube, you have about a dozen books or so behind you. So I'm guessing you're probably a big reader. You mentioned uh, Sam Zell's book at the beginning of the episode. What has been the most influential book in your life? I've been trying to think of the answer to that question. And I don't think there's one. I think that changes based on the phase I'm in in my life. As you grow throughout your life, you need different things and different forms of motivation for the phase that you're in. And a couple that I seem to be recommending the most lately, and it's probably been pretty influential over the last couple of years for me. It's actually right here. This one, it's called Vivid Vision. And everybody who hasn't read it should. It's a quick read. It's short. But if you listen to podcasts and you watch the YouTube videos and you see the social media, it's really easy to have shiny object syndrome. You're like, ooh, RV parks, ooh, short-term rentals, ooh, multifamily. And you're like, you got to have the latest, greatest, oh my gosh. And a lot of times that holds people back because I should make it really clear. I got really great at RV parks for six years before I went and bought something else. And if you read the book, it talks to you about writing out your vision and getting really specific on the things that you want and the things you're chasing. And so I teach my students to have that vision written out and read it every morning so that each time an idea or an opportunity comes across your desk, where does it fit in your vision? And if it doesn't fit in your vision, it needs to be a hard no or a hell yes. And you're not going to know the answer to that unless you have that clear vision well thought out and written out. And this is a great book to figure that out. A few years ago, Brandon Turner ranted and raved about that book on the Bigger Pockets podcast. And it's been on my list to read ever since then. And I've read hundreds of books. I just haven't made it to that one yet. And I really need to because I'm, I'm struggling with focus right now myself. And I really need to just really get to it and read that book. Yeah, you got to read it. And then you actually have to write out the vision. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people have read it and they're like, oh, I haven't taken the time to write out my vision yet. I always tell my students, go to the beach, go to your backyard. Whatever your like, quiet space is that makes you feel relaxed and you're able to be inside your own head without your phone and think it through, write that out. You know, Brandon's, if you read it, you know, Brandon is a fabulous writer. So he's written this like perfect news article. So if you get stuck because you're trying to duplicate what Brandon's done, don't do that because we're not all Brandon Turner. He's fabulous. And so I started out by writing bullet points for mine and then turned those bullet points into, you know, like a couple paragraphs instead of thinking that I was going to write this fabulous story. I'll probably do mine on a flight. I think that's what Brandon did. And I just happen yep. to fl I fly a lot. I fly every other week. So I'll probably end up doing mine on a flight. And I very often talk about on the show, I said, after this episode, turn off your phone, turn off your podcast app. Don't go to another one. Take action on something you learned in this podcast because a lot of people just keep consuming and consuming and consuming and they don't take action and you're not going to make any progress just by learning. 
obviously education is important. You need to learn to a certain point, but then you need to take action. And so I really like that you mentioned that reading the book is not really going to do anything for you. You have to actually implement what the book says. Exactly. And that flight is the perfect opportunity because you can't use your phone and you're stuck there. (laughs) You can't go anywhere and you can't do anything. That's the perfect opportunity to be like, okay, let's hammer this out. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, Heather, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables for a second and letting the guest ask me a question. So what question do you have for me? You know, you talked about all of these different times that you've been in your camper or campground. I'm really curious what it is you look for in an RV park when you're traveling around. So it really depends on kind of why I'm traveling. Typically, I have spent most of my time in campgrounds at a lake. And so that's kind of like my more vacation type kind of travel trip, I guess I would say. And so in that case, I'm just looking for a clean facility is really the biggest thing for me. Most of the time I'm going to the lake and we have boats or jet skis, or we have a lot of different activities that we're doing around where we are anyway. So I'm not really a person that does a ton with the activities at the campgrounds, but I want a clean facility I mean, our RVs and our things that we stay in typically have showers, so we're not really too, too worried about that. But occasionally I might need to shower there. So I want like really clean showers or really clean bathrooms. That's kind of the the biggest thing for me. And then when I was just traveling on my month long road trip, that was less of a kind of vacation destination. It was more of like a quick stop. And so for me, I needed things like utilities. I needed maybe water fill up, like potable water fill up for just the night so I could stop and get some water. Maybe my tank was empty or I needed sewer. A lot of campgrounds, I was surprised to see they didn't have any like a dump station where I could empty the wastewater tanks. And so I needed a campground that could do that. So it's kind of those those utilities and clean amenities for me, kind of depending on which type of trip I'm on. Do you use Good Sam to look up ratings of parks? I don't think I use Good Sam, but I ended up staying at, what I ended up staying at mostly was KOAs because they had the best online platforms. They didn't have the greatest reviews, but a lot of them had sewer and dump stations, and then they had online platforms. So that was kind of what I defaulted to. But I have heard good things about Good Sam. When I'm traveling, I default to that because you're going to get the basic requirements you're looking for. Otherwise, KOA would have pulled the franchise. Even though it might not be a perfect property, it's going to be acceptable. Yeah, exactly. One of the campgrounds I was staying at was not nice. Like it was not nice at all. The staff was very rude. Like it was not a good experience, but they had what I needed. And that was really all I was there for was to just empty the wastewater tanks and get electricity and get some water. So, I mean, they filled the basic needs that I had. It's interesting that you word it that way too, because I always teach my students to think of their avatar. Who's going to be staying at your park and what are they going to expect? And you need to make sure you've carried that throughout, whether we're talking about RV parks or glamping, because in that situation where you're saying they were rude and the park was sucked, it didn't really matter because your expectations were, I'm here for a night. I just need to dump my tanks, fill them up and move on. Versus when you're at the lake, you expect a different experience because you're on vacation. Those people better be nice and friendly and those bathrooms better be clean. And I think they knew it too, because literally we were, I could hit the highway with a baseball from my campsite. So like they know this is a very transient kind of location. People probably aren't staying here for weekends or weeks at a time versus the lake campground. Like they need to throw, they often throw like family get togethers, cornhole tournaments, things like that for everybody in the campground. I wouldn't need that at the other one. So it's like really, like you said, knowing your avatar. Exactly. The lake wants you to come back and they want you to tell your friends and they want you to write good reviews. Absolutely. Well, Heather, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure the audience is going to want to connect with you. So where's the best place to find you? 
You can find me on Instagram or TikTok at Heather Blankenship X3. I will be sure to put a link to both of those profiles in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Heather, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.